Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard? I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, the topic of this episode is among my favorites in the entire world. <laughs> uh, even if I didn't know what the episode is about, I would know what the episode is about just by the gleam in your eye, Jennifer. So we are going back to the 90s, and it's not just my favorite time period because that was really my era, being a little bit older than you, Jack. But this was really the time of just a momentous shift within the Democratic Party. It's the Clinton era, and I feel like we are living with the kind of legacy of that in, in ways that, that shape our everyday, particularly when it comes to education. Yeah, three decades after the birth of the New Democrats and, uh, and the rise of the Third Way, we are beginning to uh, reap what they sowed. Well, we're going to be speaking with the author of a brand new book. Her name is Lily Geismer, and the book is called Left Behind, The Democrats' Failed Attempt to Solve Inequality. It's a fantastic book, and it's also quite hefty, which means that I was particularly pleased to get to deliver it to the home of my, my co-host recently. It was contactless delivery. It was, and so people can appreciate the size of this book. I'm going to just give them a, an audible understanding. Wow. So yeah. thank you, Jack. You haven't done that for a while. No. And I should just say that that this is actually the first in a series. We have another author spectacular coming up. And Jack, why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, we're going to have Beth Pop Berman on the show to talk about her new book, Thinking Like an Economist, How Efficiency Replaced Equality in U.S. Public Policy. And People who follow me on Twitter know that I recently tweeted that I've just been beside myself uh, with feelings of uh, envy at Beth's book, that I wish I had written this book. And I, I don't feel that that often. It, it's a great topic, and it's a really good book. I've just started to read it, so I'm really excited to have her on. Well, Jack, I was overcome by feelings of envy as I read Lily Geismer's book, wishing that I could have written such a book. Because it really is this, I feel like even though this is a time period that I know a lot about, I'm a little bit obsessed with it. I learned so much. It's this deeply immersive history with a lot of the kind of insider info that just delights me. Yeah. Well, maybe when we're done recording, Jennifer, we can have a little self-help session where we can, um, you know, give each other affirmations and then we'll, we'll feel a little bit better. Now, I am always excited when we do an episode of the pod about a book, but I am at peak excitement for this episode. Our guest is Lily Geismer, and she's the author of a new book called Left Behind, The Democrats' Failed Attempt to Solve Inequality. Make a note of that so that you can order it as soon as we're done. If you're a regular listener to Have You Heard, you are very familiar with the Democrats' embrace of so-called market-based solutions in the education world. And perhaps like me, you've often found yourself wondering, how exactly did this happen? Well, the answers are to be found in Geismer's new book. 
In a nutshell, Left Behind is about a new generation of younger Democratic politicians who, starting in the 1970s, moved away from the idea of using government to tackle poverty and inequality and instead looked to private business in the market. You've probably heard a version of this history where the Democrats tacked right in response to a rising right. Geismer's account is different. These new Democrats were true believers. Much of the story of the Democratic Party since the 1960s is either a story of decline or a story of the Democrats just sort of being reactive and defensive to the Republican Party. Republicans and and conservatives are sort of who's in power, and Democrats are sort of reactive to that, and especially on issues around the economy and the market, that it was all kind of strategic. And so I wanted to kind of challenge that. And I look at it actually before Clinton comes to power in the 1990s with the group of Democrats who were initially called the Watergate babies who come into office in the aftermath of of Watergate. And it's not actually Richard Nixon who they're opposed to. It's the direction of the Democratic Party. For the new Democrats, moving the party in a new direction meant moving away from the ideals of the New Deal. They're concerned, basically, that the Democrats had become really beholden by special interests, who's primarily the labor movement, and that these kind of close alliances between labor and the Democratic Party was hurting the party electorally, but also hurting it in terms of the economy. And the other critical thing that happens in 1974, when the the Watergate babies come into office and sort of sweep Congress, there's 40 new members of Congress that year, is the economic recession of the 1970s, which has eerie parallels to today as well. The combination of of rising inflation and the oil crisis had led to a sense that the kind of New Deal Keynesian model wasn't working and they needed to find a new solution. And so what they turned to is a continued belief that the Democrats have long had an economic growth. I mean, that's at the heart of the kind of post-war liberal model led by John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson that you kind of need to grow the economy. But that becomes sort of the means and the end. So they become really committed to this idea of kind of economic growth, but using new arenas, the economy to do that. So instead of sort of focusing on traditional manufacturing and industrial growth, it's all about post-industrial growth promoting and investing into the tech industry, into finance, and also into free trade. That's going to be both the sort of salvation of the nation's economy, but also of the Democratic Party. So what, you may be wondering, does all of this have to do with education? In a word, everything. As you know from my co-host's many history lessons on this program, education has long been central to the Democratic Party, which saw schooling as not just a social good, but a way to promote equality and the means for individuals to rise up the ranks. The New Democrats doubled down on this meritocratic view of education. But what makes them different is their commitment to the idea that more and better education is a way to promote economic growth. And one rising Democratic Party star exemplifies this view better than anyone. Bill Clinton becomes a kind of core example of this. When he becomes governor of Arkansas, he was governor in 1978. He loses in 1980 because they had two-year elections. He comes back in 1982 and he makes education kind of critical to his platform. And a lot of it has to do with his larger model of economic growth. So tying education to this idea of economic growth. And the notion is that sort of what's holding the Arkansas economy back, but then also the kind of the national economy back is that you don't have educated workers. And so Arkansas was a state that had high adult illiteracy rates. 
and that you didn't have educated workers. And so if you can sort of educate, that can attract industry, which then can then fuel economic growth and especially kind of post-industrial industry. And that is critical to this particular kind of new Democrats vision of sort of education and economic growth together. As for the workers who might be, quote unquote, left behind by the new post-industrial economy, well, education was the answer for them, too. It goes to another idea that it's okay to kind of promote free trade and globalization because you're going to provide new training to workers who lost their jobs and then they can then sort of join this kind of new post-industrial economy. In the language of my book, that they'll no longer be left behind by the new economy. They'll be able to be, become part of it. And that is central to the kind of the particular kind of way that this group of people envision sort of education reform. At the center of Geismer's book are several key policy ideas that Bill Clinton and the New Democrats are wild for. In chapters that read like a novel, we watch as both Clintons fall in love with what's known as microcredit or microenterprise. That's the idea where entrepreneurs who can't access traditional bank loans get access to small amounts of money. The Clintons learn about a community bank on the south side of Chicago called Shore Bank that had used an innovative lending strategy strategy to help restore a deteriorating neighborhood, and they are inspired. For your listeners who don't know what microcredit is, that's the idea of giving small loans to low-income people to start their own businesses in this kind of pure lending model, and particularly focusing on poor women of color. And Clinton learns about it through the people from Shorebank. Actually, both Clintons learn about it together. They think it's really interesting as part of this bigger program to do kind of community development banking. They also set up a microenterprise program in the Arkansas Delta to help largely poor women who'd been on welfare become more self-sufficient and start their own businesses. And that, to me, it's critical to the kind of approach, the types of solutions that the new Democrats like Clinton offer to, to address the problems of inequality and poverty using the market, trying to harness the market to do good. And Clinton really makes it central to his platform when he runs for president in 1992 as this kind of new solutions that he's going to offer. Most of Left Behind is focused on the eight years of Bill Clinton's presidency and the policies that he and the New Democrats advanced. Here's how Geismer sums up the Clinton years, and I'm going to quote from the book because I just loved this description. Quote, an enduring effort to promote private sector investment, market-based tools, and opportunity rather than redistribution, government assistance, and economic security as the best route to address poverty, economic inequality, and racial segregation, end quote. Microcredit was one of these market-based tools, and there was another one that I'm betting you're probably a little more familiar with. I was thinking, like, there must be some kind of charter school connection when I started the book, because that seems to be such a sort of critical market-oriented idea. I was surprised to learn both what a kind of proselytizer Bill Clinton was and very early of charter schools. And I think this goes to another thing that I try to show in the book, which is that these were not just strategic ideas that they were adopting. Like Bill Clinton genuinely believed in these, and he genuinely believed that both programs like microcredit could help people, but also that charter schools could be a really central kind of um, reform to education. Geismer says that it took Clinton a minute to warm to the charter school concept, but once he did, he became one of its most enthusiastic cheerleaders. That's because in many ways, charter schools represented just the sort of market-based response to social and economic problems the New Democrats were so keen on. 
he's actually initially somewhat skeptical of it because he's worried that teachers unions are going to oppose it. But then he adopts it as this kind of critical idea that really speaks and actually aligns with core aspects of the New Democrat philosophy. One is the idea of kind of doing sort of innovation and disruption and reform, but still within the public school system. And I think one of the core things is that this is a place where it's sort of in response to the Republicans who've been really pushing school vouchers. I think this goes to where there's actually like a key difference between the kind of Clinton New Democrat version of kind of market-oriented thinking, their Democratic version of neoliberalism, to the more kind of Reagan-Milton-Friedman approach, which is just like straight school vouchers. They're skeptical of that. They don't like the idea of fully privatizing education, but they really like the idea that you could kind of, that you could disrupt and challenge and get big bureaucracies and impose sort of different ideas of accountability and also experiment through a mechanism like charter school. So Clinton makes it actually central to his bid for the presidency in 1982. And then actually like through both through using his kind of bully pulpit, but also through funding is actually becomes critical in kind of funding the first rounds of charter schools in the 1990s. In their embrace of charter schools, the Clinton Democrats found a willing and eager partner in Silicon Valley. But what's so surprising about the story that Geismer tells is just how early that partnership forms and how central charter schools were to the vision of the future advanced by both the New Democrats and the tech companies. In this kind of explicit efforts to kind of distance the Democratic Party from the labor movement and sort of manufacturing-based industry is this kind of promotion of tech. So the people who are called the Watergate babies then get called the Atari Democrats for their celebration of tech. And so this is both Bill Clinton, but it's also, it's especially Al Gore. So they understand that solidifying ties with Silicon Valley is critical to their economic success and the kind of growth of the American economy, but also to the Democratic Party's future. And there becomes this kind of very early alliance on education issues between the Clinton administration and the tech industries. Al Gore starts to host these dinners called Gore-Tech Sessions, where he brings big leaders from the tech industry, especially John Doerr, who's a managing director at Kleiner Perkins, one of the big venture capital firms in Silicon Valley. And they start to kind of think about big issues. And one of the big issues that comes up is education. In those conversations, one of the big things that comes up is charter schools. And people like John Doerr really like the idea of charters because they kind of speak to some of the same goals and ideals of Silicon Valley of the time, of kind of these notions of kind of disrupting an older bureaucracy, innovation, experimentation, and that it could create a better educated workforce. The tech industry actively takes up the cause of charter school expansion. Some familiar names and organizations pop up in Geismer's account. But here again, the surprise is just how central Silicon Valley is to the growth of charter schools. They actively become involved in expanding this charter movement in a couple of ways. One is Reed Hastings, the founder of Netflix, leads a campaign to lift the cap on charter schools in California. When the charter legislation was passed, you could only have 100 charters in the state, and they lead a campaign to lift that. And then John Doerr starts the New School Ventures Fund, which is basically the idea of kind of using traditional tools of venture capitalism in education. And one of their core issues in the late 90s is charter schools, but to bring charter schools to scale through the creation of charter management organizations. So they're big promoters of that idea and start funds um, in the late 90s and early 2000s to really bring the, the charter management organization model nationally. It's actually really critical in the expansion of charters in the 21st century. 
So, Jack, there was obviously a lot in Lily Geismer's book that thrilled me. And and one of the chapters that I thought was so interesting was her history of charter schools. I feel like I know a lot about this stuff, but there were things in there that I had never heard before. And one of them is sort of just how connected the Clinton-era Democratic Party saw charter schools in Silicon Valley being from the very beginning. And um, she mentions that, you know, one of their goals all along was, you know, they were always thinking about ways to weaken the grip of special interests over the Democratic Party. And whenever you hear special interests, know that they're talking about teachers unions, not just teachers unions, but also really African Americans who were perceived as making too many expensive demands or demanding the kinds of policies that were setting off backlash. So I thought the context for charter schools was so interesting, but there was a lot in there that I didn't know. And as I was thinking about what we should talk about in this episode, I found myself thinking back to something, one of your books, one of your many books, <laughs> and and uh, and thinking that, you know, I bet that this wasn't new to Jack in the way that it was to me, as much as it pains me to admit that. <laughs> I was going to say, um, I'll be surprised if that makes it into the, uh, the final episode. Um, so, yeah, I think what you're referring to is the first book that I wrote, a book called Excellence for All in which I didn't really talk about charter schools, and I have regretted that for about a decade. Um, I was writing about a phenomenon that I think is best described by saying that educational reformers were concerned with identifying, quote unquote, what works, and then taking it to scale. And that was seen as an alternative to redistribution. So rather than thinking that, you know, if what we want to do is improve education for historically marginalized groups, what we're going to have to do is think about uh, the redistribution of resources, right, about increased levels of funding for schools where we see high percentages of low-income students, um, black and brown students, instead of thinking we're going to have to, to develop a plan for moving students around in order to promote racial and economic integration in the schools, you can take a different approach. You can figure out what the secret ingredients to a good school are, and then you can replicate that every place. And there was a real excitement among the entrepreneurial class around this idea. And the cases that I talked about were cases like the small schools movement, Teach for America, the AP program, right? The idea was, gosh, lots of elite private schools are small, right? Lots of elite schools have the AP program. Lots of elite schools have teachers who graduated from high-status schools. Maybe those are the things that make those schools great. That same thinking, that same logic applied to charter schools. And the idea was that Charters would enable you to experiment and innovate and find a model that worked, and then whatever worked could be replicated elsewhere. So there was a lot of interest in the idea of innovation, in the idea of working outside of the governmental sector and harnessing uh, the ideas and the energy of private industry, right? This was the Democratic Party's interest in the quote-unquote third way. There was a lot of energy behind 
uh, pursuing a technocratic rather than political solution to the problem of educational inequality, right? That the political approach had proved to be a little bit difficult for the Democratic Party. Uh, they had suffered some defeats through a lot of pushback from middle-class white families around uh, desegregation, for instance. And this technocratic solution promised that you didn't need to fight those difficult political battles. You didn't need to generate the political will for educational equality. You could instead find some sort of technical fix that could be applied everywhere. And again, that was an idea that had particular kind of traction in Silicon Valley, right? That was their industry. And there was this additional piece, which we learn about in Geismer's book, which is that if you then were showing these Silicon Valley leaders that you were adopting their kind of thinking, you might also gain access to their checkbooks. And that would be particularly important if you were planning on alienating organized labor. Back to Lily Geismer. As you can tell, I am a big fan, and that's because I read her 2015 book, Don't Blame Us, Suburban Liberals and the Transformation of the Democratic Party. In that book, she documents a sort of shifting of gravity within the party, away from the labor union halls in northern cities and towards white-collar suburbanites, exemplified by Boston's Route 128, places like Newton, Concord, and Lexington. In that book, Geismer made a very convincing case that these suburban knowledge workers with their individualist and meritocratic values basically ended up transforming liberalism itself. So I wanted to know how she sees the connection between Don't Blame Us and Left Behind. I actually became really interested in these efforts to use the market by people like Mike Dukakis, who I talk about in my first book and their kinds of reforms um, and wanted to kind of think about what that meant. So in Don't Blame Us, I look at this way that kind of suburban liberal voters are are most liberal on things that are the furthest away from their everyday lives and aren't asking them to make any kind of sacrifice. So it's very easy to, to be opposed to the Vietnam War or to support civil rights at the national level. It's much harder to believe in affordable housing for this worldview or to support mandatory two-way busing or anything where you're going to have to make a sacrifice. And I think the same logic does apply to the Democrats' approach at a bigger scale on these issues of poverty and inequality. So it's it's really based on this idea that you can use the market to do good and that it's going to both bring economic growth and help people at the same time. The Reed Hastings approach is, is one that in some ways it's saying this is going to help you. You're going to get better workers by doing this. We're not asking you to pay for education by taking a massive like a tax increase or doing any kind of redistributive approach. Instead, it's a way of kind of using the tools that are there. And that becomes so central to the kind of Democratic Party's ethos and philosophy going forward. And it's it's appealing to people to where they get a lot of support from Silicon Valley, but also to kind of suburban voters who also like these kinds of approaches. It's not saying like you're going to have to do a lot for them. And instead, like the things that are benefiting you from the new economy can also help to benefit more people. Geismer is a historian, but I had to know how she views the present-day travails of the Democratic Party. Take, for example, the expanded child tax credit, exactly the sort of redistributive policy that the Clinton-era Dems were intent on getting away from. Well, it's dead, at least for now, while the charter school wing of the party seems to be regrouping. Geismer says that the long reach of the history she chronicles in Left Behind can very much be felt today. 
Biden was a member of the Democratic Leadership Council, but actually they didn't end up supporting him in the 1988 election because he wasn't theological enough or they didn't believe that he was sort of a, as much of a true believer. And I think that's actually true of Biden more broadly, that he's not explicitly ideological in his approach. He's a Democrat's Democrat, so he kind of goes where the party goes. So there was this kind of brief hope, I think, in the early 2021 and the late part of his campaign that he was going to sort of take on these progressive values. But what I've seen happening more and more, and I don't think it's just the sort of Joe Manchin, Kristen Cinema pressure, it's a broader issue of the party's just sort of real fear about losing power and losing the midterms. And so going back to the kind of older DLC-style playbook, one is trying to target moderate white suburbanites as the kind of centerpiece of your voting electorate. But the other side of it is to go back to a much more kind of growth-oriented economic program. Well, I don't think the Biden administration is promoting some of the kind of Clinton-era sort of full-on market-oriented ideas like microenterprise. They've been relatively toned down on issues like charters. They are pushing sort of growth as the, as the solution. The subtitle of Left Behind is The Democrats' Failed Attempt to Solve Inequality. And that's among the key lessons of this book. These market-based policy tools like microcredit and charter schools may not be bad ideas in and of themselves, but as fixes for poverty, inequality, and segregation, they haven't worked. I think one of the issues here in all these programs that I talk about is that Clinton and the New Democrats, and especially Bill Clinton, oversold what they could do. So there's often this kind of really kind of almost hyperbolic language about things like microcredit and charter schools and like how kind of transformative they can be. And so I look at this and I say this as micro solutions to macro problems, that you're taking these small kind of microeconomic approaches and saying that they can solve the macro problems. And many of them are not bad ideas in and of themselves. They can't by themselves solve the problems of poverty. So I think for that kind of approach, you need to do much, much more aggressive and comprehensive spending by the federal government and to really kind of restore the the social safety net, not through the market, but actually through government spending and government programs. Left Behind reads like a sort of autopsy of where the Democratic Party went so wrong. The decision to leave behind organized labor, for example, looks not so wise today. And that's really the point of the book. Geismer argues that to understand and address the Democrats' current problems, we have to know how they got here. The way the book lays out a sort of cautionary tale of what's happened with the kind of real marginalization of, of labor, both in the Democratic Party, but also from the from their kind of presence in really the United States. And I think that one place of kind of this resurging power of the labor movement has actually another place to kind of bring kind of economic, core economic security. The other thing that I argue in the book is to look at these moments, is to understand the kind of current tensions that are we're seeing play out within the party and sort of understanding both that they've always been there and that this kind of New Democrat approach obscured them for a long time, but their tensions that are sort of are persistent are not going to go away and need to be fundamentally addressed. And I don't know if I necessarily have the full playbook. And I, people should still read the book to read about the problems, <laughs> but, but it's a, it is a really hard question. That was Lily Geismer. She's an associate professor of history at Claremont McKenna College and the author of a fabulous new book, Left Behind, How the Democrats Failed to Solve Inequality. I give it my heartiest recommendation. And Jack and I will be right back to talk about the recent union win by Amazon warehouse workers and the long shadow of the Democrats' turn away from organized labor. We'll also be unveiling the topic of this episode's In the Weeds segment for our Patreon supporters. Here's a hint. Have you heard 
heard the one about how angry parents are going to deliver a victory for the GOP in the midterm elections? Let's discuss. If this intrigues you, just go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast to become a supporter. So Jack, I want to switch gears just a little bit. We've been immersing ourselves in the 90s, but now we're speeding up to the present. And I want to talk about the Amazon Union election. A friend of the show, Sam Adler-Bell, who co-hosts my favorite podcast, Know Your Enemy, had this great piece uh, for New York Magazine about why the Democrats should embrace the Amazon unionization effort, but why it would be so hard for them to do so. And what he was saying basically was that, think about it, here you have this, this multiracial uh, effort to you know organize workers and like what could be more inspiring. But because the Democrats are so stuck in exactly the culture and context we've been talking about, they can't do it. And Sam went through and he looked at all the people who had been involved in the Obama administration that are now, you know, either they're working for Amazon in corporate positions or they have, you know, kind of the, you know, they're they're in some kind of anti-union ca- capacity. But it goes even beyond that. There was this... Uh, uh, article that came out in Vice a while back where somebody got a hold of a leaked uh, internal memo where the corporate exec disparaged Christian Smalls, who's the leader of the organizing drive, is not very smart, not very articulate. And I thought, I think a lot of people just looked at that and they thought, oh, wow, it's so insulting. But it's more than that. It's this bigger vision that what they really want to happen is for the Amazon workers to go to college or get some kind of retraining so that they won't be Amazon workers anymore, right? Like organizing a union to demand more for the company is the thing that we moved away from. Yeah, it's a full embrace of the myth of meritocracy and the belief that the only legitimate way of getting ahead is by acquiring a high-status education that is going to give you access to better-paying jobs, right? That we don't need to rethink the way that we compensate people for their work in this country. That instead, we need to ensure that there's a fair starting line so that when there is a competition for economic and social resources, that we can feel better, we can sleep at night knowing that the inequality we see across our society is a product of merit rather than a difference in where people started. And we can see that that helps us explain then, that kind of thinking helps us explain the obsession among this kind of new Democrat, right? Not so new anymore, but new Democrat in the 90s with educational reform because the idea there was that if we're going to move away from redistribution as an idea, as a core tenet of our policy approach, we're going to have to ensure a fair starting line for everybody. We're going to have to make sure that everybody has access to the competition, but there was an embrace of the idea that we are all in competition with one another for resources and that inequality, economic inequality and social inequality were a reality of life in this country and that the unfortunate part was that 
the inequalities that we see were often predetermined, uh, that if they weren't predetermined, then perhaps they would be acceptable. And of course, all of the people who were involved in decision-making around this, right, all of the people in positions of power were themselves going to do whatever it took to make sure that their kids got an advantage all along the way, right? As individuals, they sure weren't going to let anybody take opportunities from their children. And so we see here, right, a, a nod towards formal equity. In the meantime, we see in private life a different kind of attitude, a different set of behaviors that indicate that this is a jungle, we are all in competition with one another, do whatever you can to get ahead. So there was this moment recently that I think just perfectly captures what you were describing, Jack. President Biden gave a kind of shout out to the Amazon workers during a press conference and the corporate media immediately descended and asked if it was some kind of a gaffe, right? Because they, you know, it's so unusual. It's so unusual to hear um, a president really have much to say about organized labor at all. But it's also because of what you were describing, that that those kind of uh, media personalities, they are completely wedded to that idea that the way that you get ahead is by taking the right classes, going to the right schools, making the right connections. And so they don't, they lack any context for, you know, like workers banding together to demand a greater share of what the company has. Now, obviously, we do see more of this happening in, you know, uh, media organizations and white-collar workplaces. But I think overall, the the culture and the just intense commitment to that kind of meritocratic view is just, you know, we're stuck with that. I just think it's important to think about what the purpose of these policies is, right? It's always important to think about the purpose of any policy, but if the purpose of a policy that is targeted at inequality, right, you're trying to remedy inequality through policy, it's important to think about why are you doing that? And if you're doing it so that the winners, right, the quote unquote winners can feel okay about winning, that's going to look really different than if your concern is ensuring that there are no losers, right? That people who don't end up, uh, you know, sailing their yachts around the world or living in Bel Air are able to live lives of dignity. If that's your concern, you're going to take a very different policy approach. You're going to try to ensure that people have access to schools that meet a basic level of quality, uh, that their neighborhoods are going to have basic levels of resources and access. Then in their jobs, they're being compensated at a basic level, right? And if your concern instead is making sure that the system looks fair uh, so that whatever inequality there is can therefore be dismissed as the result of differences in ability and effort, that's going to look really different. Well, Jack, as our listeners know, we on Have You Heard are very committed to economic redistribution. That's why we ask them to support us via Patreon. That's right. That's right. It's uh, it's it's our, our little effort to make a difference in the world is by taking your dollars and making them ours. 
If you would like to become a supporter of Have You Heard, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and you'll see a list of all the cool extras you can get just by throwing a couple dollars our way each month. We do a custom reading list. This one is particularly good. And we uh, host a special area that we call In the Weeds. And today I'm going to be taking aim at an article that I'm sure listeners have seen again and again and again. And that would be any article that's out there claiming that education is going to be the big issue for Republicans in the midterms. And I'm hoping Jack will join me. Yeah, I saw you tweeting about that. And you tweeted out an article from US News and World Report, uh, which surprised me because I thought that they had given up reporting. And then I saw they were just actually copying and pasting something from the Associated Press. Uh, So I enjoyed that. Yeah, for those of you who are interested more in distribution than redistribution, we encourage you to share this podcast with people who you think might enjoy listening to it. Um, You can do so in a variety of ways, including by tagging them and the show on Twitter. Our handle is at HaveYouHeardPod. We are available on all of the streaming and download services, including iTunes. Um, Go on and give us a rating wherever you get the show because that helps other people find us and makes it easier for us to distribute this high-quality product. Particularly well done, Jack. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard.